This is our first Sunday together in this building. It's, I've been talking about, I've been using this language, same book, new chapter. Same book, new chapter. Same church. This church is not defined by a building, but a building, you know, in November can greatly serve a community of people who want to gather together in some sense of comfort and attention. And so um, this morning and next week, I want to spend a bit of time telling our story as a church, and I'm just going to tease it out a bit this morning, and we'll get to it in some more depth, who we are and kind of where we've come from and some of the stories from within our church of, of change. But here's where I want to start this morning. Stories have great power. Stories have incredible power. The phenomenon of movies, the phenomenon of books, the phenomenon of social media, it's all actually rooted in story. The lyrical content of songs most times overwhelmingly actually tell stories. We're surrounded by stories and as people, individuals and communities, we tell stories and we tell stories all the time. And one of the powerful things about story is they have this unique truth to anchor ideas in our minds. They, they can anchor truth in our minds, and they anchor lies in our minds as well. I'll give you an example. Uh, the tortoise and the hare anchors what truth in the mind? Slow and steady wins the race, right? The boy who cried wolf anchors a truth, a particular truth in our minds. Not only do we tell stories like those for over the ages, but we also tell ourselves stories all of the time. No one talks to you. No one tells you stories more than you actually tell yourself stories. No one talks to you more than you. Here's an untrue story that many of us in the room often tell ourselves. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. When we do something well, well, that was all right. When we make a minor mistake, who am I? What reason do I have for living? I'm a total failure. Like, it's, it's funny, but not funny. It, the reality is, is that we're actually rehearsing these kinds of stories. Here's a true story that many followers of Jesus in the room tell ourselves. God knows what he is doing even when we don't. This anchors truth and hope in our lives. We tell other people's stories. We tell our own stories to people. And we are always telling and believing various stories because our lives are rooted in story. Listen to this. All human creativity is an echo of God's creativity. When God makes man, he forms him in the dirt. He breathes life into him. He sends him out into the world. And we, as people, have been playing in the dirt ever since. Just as God took something that he'd made, he shaped it, he breathed life and meaning into it and transformed it into something new, so we also set about our own business, taking creation, shaping it, and giving it new meaning and purpose. And so clay becomes sculpture. Trees become houses. Sounds are arranged in time to become music. Oils and pigments and canvas are arranged to become paintings. Various metals and glass and petroleum products become iPhones. The same is true of stories. 
There is nothing new under the sun, and our stories, no matter how fresh and new they might feel, are all a way of playing in the dirt, wrestling with creation, reimagining it, working with it, making it new. And our stories have a way of fitting into the bigger story of redemption that overshadows all of life and all of history because that bigger story of redemption is the dirt box in which all of the other stories play. So this morning, I want to begin telling all of life's origin story, but I have a dilemma and some inner tension, and here it is. I want to tell, I want to tell our story in such a way that we are not the central characters in the story. I want to tell our story in such a way that we are not the hero of our own story, but actually to tell it in a way that Jesus Christ is the center of our story and the hero of our story. And so I want us to tell our story as a church. I want us to learn to tell our stories as individuals as well in a way that displays Jesus Christ as the hero of our lives. We can tell our stories with us at the center very easily. And I found this, and I did this, and I accomplished this. But there's a subtle shift when we begin to talk about the work of God in our lives and continually look for avenues to give Him credit that actually place Him. We're a character in the story. We're just not the central character in our own stories. And so I want us to think about our collective story as a church. If you're new with us, we want you to throw in with us. And if this isn't the place for you, that's okay. You can find a, a community that does fit you. We'd be, helping, uh, we'd be happy to help you find a community if you're looking for something unique. But I want us to understand this. If not for Jesus Christ... This group on the screen of 12 adults and 10 kids, 11 kids, would not have met on March 2nd, 2015 to form a core group, to travel to Spokane, to be trained every single Sunday for six months, to be trained and equipped and aligned together in order to plant All of Life Church in the fall of 2015. There are a handful of people missing, and a few of our kids are missing, obviously, from that. But 23 people got together and began to dream about transformation and what it could look like to plant a new community, another expression of God's grace among the people of Post Falls. And if not for Jesus Christ, this community of Acts 29 pastors and church leaders in the Pacific Northwest would not have come together to lay hands on some of our core team and to to, to call upon the Lord Jesus to, to bless us and equip us and empower us to send us into this community to be beacons of salt and light to the people around us. If not for Jesus Christ, this group of about 100 people would not have been brought together from a handful of churches in Coeur d'Alene and Spokane and Post Falls to publicly pray for and to support and to celebrate the start of All of Life Church. And if not for Jesus Christ, this tiny group would not have had our first Sunday worship gathering in 2015 in such an impressive way. (laughs) Look at that. Look at the crowd. We got some lights. I don't see any fog or any smoke or anything like that, but I just look at this picture and I go, what in the world? How did anybody who came that week or the next week want to stick around with us? The Lord Jesus Christ was preached. 
We're praying to him and humbling ourselves before him, trying to love one another as messy as we were and are. If you were in that room, you know. And the Lord did something unique through us and to us. There's a magnificence to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ that pulls people together in every age and culture, forgiving our sin, soothing our consciences, and forming us into new communities of trust and beauty, grace and generosity, mercy and shared mission. I'm so thankful that this great small church gets to play our part in God's great big story of redemption. Colossae is a uh, Colossae was an ancient Roman town. It's located in modern-day Turkey, and it was a small town that was on a trade route. It was an important city, but it was small, and it was actually the religious headquarters in first-century Rome uh, for a, a local kind of small angel-worshiping cult. These um, these Jewish folks would, they were kind of like into folk Judaism and they would, they, they began to uh, see somehow power of angels, reality of angels. They began to worship them and to call on them for blessing. And, um, and in the midst of these folks being located in Colossae, this unlikely, unsexy new community pops up suddenly in their midst. It was a small group of Jesus followers. This church was likely planted by a guy named Epaphras, who was a hometown guy, and he had been away from Colossae in a, a city named Ephesus, and he had encountered followers of Jesus, and he had heard the preaching of the Apostle Paul, and the Holy Spirit did something unique to him. The truth of the gospel dawned on him. He became a believer. He began to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And then whatever providence it was took him back to Colossae. And this changed man wanted to share the good news of Jesus Christ with his fellow citizens in Colossae. And so he, round, he preached the gospel apparently and rounded up a handful of people whose lives were also transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And they began to worship together. And eventually, after a few years, this young church gets a letter from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is writing to them. And he is writing in his letter that he is praying for them. And not only he, but the other apostles are praying for this young church. And he's writing to them to teach them about the magnificence of Jesus of Nazareth. And this young um, church was being tempted um, to, to just mix a little angel worship in with a little Jesus worship, and Paul knew that that would be a grave mistake. I want you to turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles, um, on your phone, Bibles around the room. It's page 924 in the Black Bibles on the seats around the room. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 13. And I just want to use verses 13 and 14 to kind of set the stage, but I really want to anchor our time in verses 15 through 20. Paul is writing this letter after a few years to this church in Colossae. And this is what Paul says. He says, He, Jesus, 
has delivered us, he's talking about he and the apostles, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul is saying that the Lord Jesus Christ has incredibly transformed them. And he recognizes that this transformation comes through the redemption and the forgiveness of sin that Jesus offers And then Paul, a friend of mine, Tony, says that Paul almost doesn't um, recover from this initial thought of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, uh, of God's marvelous light. He begins to talk about and just exalt in the truth and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul writes about Jesus. He says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of or over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body. That is a metaphor for the church. Jesus is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And I just want, I'm going to go on reading here through verse 29, but this chunk that I've just read is what I want us to have in our view this morning. Paul writes, he says, And you, Colossians, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death for a purpose. And what is the purpose? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast on this truth, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. To make this mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but that is now revealed to his saints known. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory, dwells in his people. And Paul writes in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And Paul says, For this I toil, working with all of His energy that He powerfully works within me. Colossians 1, 15-20 is epic in its scope. I'm not overusing that word epic. If you, want, like, if you want concise, industrial strength description of the magnificent reality of the real Jesus, this passage is one of the very best the New Testament has to offer. 
And so I want to take verses 15 through 20, verse by verse, and, and work through them. And my goal is that we would have this consuming picture of Jesus in our view whenever we talk about the story of our church or whenever we talk about our own stories. So Paul writes in verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15, he is, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. This word image, anytime you come to it in the Bible, it's a big word. It's kind of a stop and figure out what's around it. What are we talking about word? It's anchored in the very front end of the scriptures in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which I'll read. This is what God says about the creation of man and woman. God, speaking among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, says, let us make man or mankind in our image. There's the word. After our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 uses this word image three times here. Genesis is speaking of Adam. Adam and Eve, Adam. And as we follow the story of the scriptures from the first portions of our Bible, it's pretty apparent that within a couple of chapters, Adam fails spectacularly. Paul, as he's writing to this Colossian church, probably has Genesis chapter 1 in his view here. Paul would often speak of Jesus, especially in his letter to the Romans, of Jesus, he would speak as he would speak of Jesus as the new Adam. The one who had come to renew what Adam in the garden had set off of the rails. This new Adam, Jesus, begins to renew all that the old Adam destroyed. Death comes through Adam. Life comes through Jesus Christ. Sin comes through Adam, but righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus the image, the enfleshed one who is, um, who, who is showing what the invisible God is like, but Paul says he's also the firstborn over all creation. And there's a, a pretty big, ancient, long-term heresy that still exists today that is anchored largely from this text, and it's called Arianism. It's from a guy named Arius in the third century who essentially asserted that Jesus was created, that in him taking on flesh, that was him actually coming into existence, that, that there was a time when Jesus his personhood, his, his, his reality as God, there was a time when he did not exist. And so Arianism asserts that Jesus Christ is not creator, but actually creation. That is not what Paul is saying by calling Jesus the firstborn over all creation in this passage. Paul isn't talking about the physicality of Jesus' human birth. He's talking about the rights that uniquely belong to the firstborn son. So being recognized as the firstborn in first century Rome was a high honor. It was probably the biggest honor a person in a family could have to be the firstborn. A modern equivalent would be Prince Charles, who is now King Charles III. He's the firstborn son of Queen Elizabeth. And as the firstborn, he has rights to the throne. And now that she has passed away and he has ascended to the throne, he oversees and has rights to, as king, the throne of the United Kingdom and all of its commonwealths. 
And so because Charles III is the firstborn, this means that he is in front of all of his siblings and all of his family members. Likewise, Jesus, the image of this invisible God and the firstborn over all creation is in front of everyone and everything. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and all things were created for Jesus. And so what Paul is doing right here is taking the firstness of Jesus even further in this passage. By means of Jesus, the Scriptures are saying everything in creation was created. Meaning what? Jesus is Creator. So when you think about Jesus Christ, it is right and proper and biblical, scriptural, to think about Jesus as the one who was with Father and Spirit at the beginning, creating and decreeing and ordaining everything. And so Paul wants his readers in this church in Colossae who are being tempted to to worship angels to actually see Jesus as the creator of the angels and of all of the things that are more powerful than these people. Paul wants us and them to see how far this creative power of Jesus extends. And so he says he's the creator of heaven and earth. This is what's called a merism. Whenever you see the words heaven and earth mentioned together in the scriptures, it means the heavens and the earth and everything in between them. It's shorthand for cosmos. Anytime you see heaven and earth, it's shorthand for cosmos. So he is the creator of the cosmos. Not only that, but he's created all things visible and invisible. So we're talking nanoparticles and we're talking mountain ranges like Everest and Denali. We're talking sound waves, invisible, and we're talking tidal waves, visible. Not only that, but the entire unseen spiritual realm, every rank of every angel, both holy angels and fallen angels. And all of this is in Paul's view as he is writing to the Colossians. So what he's asserting is that all of life and all of creation is created by Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ. We can accurately say that all of life is all for Jesus. And it's important for us to, to, to recognize he's not just powerful as creator here, but to, to see or to try, for those of us who are familiar with the New Testament, to try and see a bit of Jesus' heart in all of this too out of the joyful extension of Jesus' love, He creates. He creates, why? To enjoy His creation. To rule over His creation righteously. Keyword, righteously. And to bless His creation. Parents, this is why some of us and so many of us have babies. Right? We, we don't create kids Oftentimes, if we're creating them from, a, if we're starting families from a healthy place so that they will love us, we create them in order to love them. We create them in order to provide for them. We create them to enjoy them and to bless them. And the beauty is that our kids begin to love us and bless us too. And there's some um, reciprocal 
relationship happening. But the key reason, if we're starting families from a healthy place, that we start them is so that we can love them and provide for them. And so here's the point that Paul is trying to make. The point that Paul is trying to make is that Jesus is the point. Jesus is the center point of creation. Like the artist is the center point of a gallery. And he writes in verse 17, And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. Jesus is in front of everything, and he's the one who keeps the world running, which means that Jesus keeps everything running. So it doesn't matter whether or or not you and I care about the law of thermodynamics. The law of thermodynamics continues to be the law of thermodynamics day in and day out, whether we exist or like it or not. Seasons changing like they are now, leaves falling off of trees, 25 degree weather, whether we like it or not, it does not matter whether or not seasons change. They do, and he oversees all of that. And the temperature of the earth stays consistent, not based on anything we do, but based on the one who oversees everything. So Jesus, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is not only Savior and Redeemer who forgives us and soothes our consciousness and cleanses us from our sin, but He is also Creator and Ruler and Sustainer. If you've been with us when we have, um, when we prepared these gatherings in the morning time, we'll, we'll hunker down for 25 or 30 minutes in prayer and we'll all gather up in a circle and we'll put, put our hands in the middle. And on the count of three, what do we say? This is what we mean. He's Lord of our lives, Lord over all sin and all the evil that we have done and has the power to extend His forgiveness and righteousness to us. And He is creator and maker. He is magnificent in a way that nothing else compares. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. Paul says in verse 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, that in everything he might be, the Greek word there is proto, that he might be first. This Jesus is the senior pastor of our church, which is his church, which he has purchased us and brought us together with his own blood. A personal rule of mine is I, I don't, in conversation, sometimes it happens, but I try not to refer to all of life church as my church. Sometimes in conversation, you know, it just slips out. But when it does slip out, I kind of do this little like thing, you know, where I'm a bit allergic to it because I, I understand at a theological level and I want to work that down into my own soul in the way that I even just have ordinary conversations that I do not think of this church as my church. I am not the Lord of this church. I am one of the elders of this church who Jesus Christ has appointed, but I, along with the other elders in this church, seek to find the mind of Christ, and we submit our lives to Him. He is our Lord, and we are His servants, which means that Jesus has veto power at all times over us. And Jesus is not just the head of our local church, but he's the head of every local church in all places and throughout all history. 
Verse 19, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is a hard one to grasp. It's a bit like oil in the hands. It, uh, it, it bends your brains a little bit. At least it makes mine slip gears. In the man Jesus Christ, God is fully present. So if you met the in the flesh Jesus in 31 AD, you would simultaneously be speaking to a complete human and complete God who lacked nothing. The fullness of God would be standing before you on human feet looking at you through human eyes. It's hard to get your mind around. If you want to dive in a little bit, look up hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Just Google it a bit, find a few trusted sources, and just start reading a bit on the hypostatic union. It is the the doctrine or the theology of how Jesus Christ can be both 100% human and 100% God simultaneously. Verse 20 says this, and through Jesus, so verse 19, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20, and through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The idea here is that reconciliation, the way to reconciliation with God comes only through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the new Adam, is the one who restores fellowship between God and sinners. And the way that Jesus Christ makes peace is by giving His life as a once-for-all substitute for the unworthy ones who deserve death. And all people in every age and all of history have rebelled against God and and deserve to be cut off from life with God. We have rejected Him. Yet God extends His goodness and His generosity continually to the unworthy. That's how I got in on this. I was not looking for Him. He found me. That's my experience of Jesus Christ. And the unworthy ones like you and I decide. Will we continue on... Uh, insisting that we operate as the gods of our own lives and continue to reject Him? Or will you and I relent and trust Him, entrusting ourselves to Him to begin to love Him? And as people entrust themselves to Jesus' work and take Jesus at His word, we are adopted into the family of God and given the right to become children of God. That's the reality that the gospel proclaims to us. And in every age and every community since 33 AD, God circles up His children into new communities called ecclesias or churches. Diverse kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds come together with the most central person in all of history, the unifying one, Jesus Christ, among them. And this Jesus is alive. That's the reality. He's alive and He is active in each of our communities, transforming each person through His Spirit who lives in each person and works to unify the community into true family. 
And this Spirit who lives within us, the Holy Spirit, moves us outside of ourselves, gives us gifts, moves us outside of our comfort zones to draw other unworthy ones into the worshiping community. For what purpose? To make them better people? Mm -mm. To make us family. To make us the family of God. Some of His work in us, as as He sanctifies us, It does make us better people, but we are not justified or brought in or even loved because we are good or bad. We were all, we had all gone astray. There were no one good, no, not one. And so I want to end here. If not for Jesus Christ, if not for Jesus Christ, you and I and your kids would not be in this room right now together. No matter who you say he is, without his life, without his death, without his burial, without his resurrection, without his ascension, without his promised return, we just would not be here together. And if not for Jesus Christ, we would not have the assurance that the things, the ungodly, the sinful things that we have done in our past, in our present, and even in our future We would have no assurance that those could be covered. We would still be continuing to eke out our way and try to soothe our guilty consciences. Next week, I want to tell the story of how Jesus gripped Meredith and I with the gospel. How Jesus wrapped up 10 other adults with eight other kids with the gospel. Have, has gripped a host of other people over the last seven years to lead us out into this great known unknown to form a community that exists to give everyday salt-of-the-earth people exposure to the gospel, time to wrestle with its implications, and safety to behold and to believe and to gladly belong to the real Jesus of Colossians 1. And so as a worshiping community, it's Him we proclaim. Warning one another and others with the wisdom that God gives us so that we may present one another and others mature in the presence of Jesus Christ. Our great small stories only make sense when told in light of Jesus' great big story. In the same way that the planetary orbits only make sense if the sun is at the center. If the sun is not at the center of our planets, we've got them mapping in all kinds of different directions. But when the sun is at the center of our solar system, all of the planetary orbits make sense and all of life makes sense when Jesus Christ occupies the center. Praise be to God forever and ever and ever and ever. Father, this reality is is big picture in so many ways for us this morning. There's truths that are presented by Paul in Colossians about you that are hard for us to understand. Some of us, even in the moment, are rejecting them. Some of us are clinging to them. Would you provide for everyone in this room what is needed to know you and to behold you and to love you with our lives?
Lord Jesus, would you use this community to be a welcoming place for people to rethink their lives at a deep level and to consider the implications of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, would, would you make us into a long-term disciple-making presence in this region and beyond? And it's for your beautiful and supreme name that we pray. Amen.